Uh, thank you for coming today and worshiping with us. My name is Todd, and I am one of the pastors here. And today we're continuing to work through Matthew chapter 9. We'll be in verses 18 through 26 today. And if you did not grab a listening guide on the way in, please raise your hand if you would like one, and DJ will be glad to bring you one. And the listening guide has the main points in it, the text, and a spot for taking notes. So we're just a little bit of about a third of the way through the book of Matthew. And it's uh, written by the former tax collector, Matthew, sometimes called Levi, and we've been at this for nine months. And today is a special day. We're celebrating our two-year anniversary. So two years ago today, Trinity Crestwood, two years ago, Trinity Crestwood launched. And what a blessing it's been. I must admit that I've been discouraged at times to see some of my favorite people leave. But I've also been encouraged to see the growth and the people who have stayed and the others who have come. I just want to say it's been wonderful being with you guys and worshiping with you, coming together as a church, as an elder, as a deacon, as a member. You've been very good for my spiritual growth. And the kingdom has been edified because of your faithfulness, generosity towards me, my family, and this church. I love you guys. I'm extremely grateful that God called us into fellowship together. And this is the tapestry that God has built. And no matter how many people are here, it is beautiful, it is wonderful, and it is completely his. And today we find Jesus in Capernaum, while there he's approached by a local man who asks, asks him to come heal his daughter. And she is the worst kind of sick. She's dead. You can't get sicker than that. But that doesn't stop him from asking Jesus to come and to go with him to his house and to touch her and heal her. And we see Jesus respond to this by immediately going. This man, Jairus, is a synagogue ruler. And this passage is about his request and the request of a woman that's been suffering with an issue of blood for 12 years. And during this passage, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to raise the dead. I've kind of just spoiled it for you. But he's going to go with Jairus, Jairus, and he's going to heal his daughter. And death is a terrible thing, and we've all been touched by it. And if you haven't, you will. So unless Christ returns in our lifetime, we all are going to die. And we should remember why we have death. Death is a product of the fall. Death is an aberration. It's not natural. It's traumatic and unnatural. And we should not forget that it is completely foreign to how we were supposed to live. It didn't occur naturally. God didn't intend, intend for us to physically die. Sin did that. And you remember what the first effects of the fall were in Genesis 2? God tells Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, you will surely die. And they do. And they start physically dying as soon as they eat the fruit, but they die spiritually immediately. We know this because they are immediately 
separated from God's reassuring presence. They hide from him. Instead of love and reassurance, what they feel is fear. This is the reality that we're speaking into today. This is the reality of the world that Matthew's recording. Not the reassuring presence of God, but the fear of death. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus comes to defeat death and offer life. And this is where we find ourselves today. Jesus meets two people suffering from the terrible effects of the fall and the reality of the life after the fall with death and physical suffering. Today's passage, we see a girl that's physically dead to the world and a woman who might as well be dead and who at times probably wished that she was. So let's read the passage together. I'll pray and then we'll unpack it. Open your Bibles to Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and the opportunity to dive into your word together. We just pray that you would open our eyes to see and ears to hear especially our minds, to understand these truths that you've laid out before us. We pray for grace and understanding and strength as we seek to understand and apply your word in this time and this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage is is called a triple tradition, and it means it's included in all three Gospels. And if you remember from some of the other accounts and some of the other Gospels, in the two other Gospels, these things sometimes have differences and different details are included in the different accounts. The accounts are not identical, nor should we expect them to be. You would be suspicious of eyewitness accounts where all the details were exactly the same. Perception plays a big part. And in the Gospels, the goal of the author also plays a big part. So there's parallel accounts in Mark 5 and Luke 8. And Matthew is the shortest of these accounts. Matthew often writes with brevity in mind. In in his passage, this entire account takes nine verses. It's uh, almost double that in Luke at 16, and takes Mark records it in 22 verses. So you can just see that it's going to be condensed. Some of the details are different. The passage opens with, while he was saying these things to them, leading us to believe that the count is in Capernaum, Presumably while Jesus is reclining at the table teaching, which is where we left off last week. Dave taught on teaching to the disciples about the wine and the wineskins. And while he was teaching, 
Jairus comes in. Matthew describes Jairus as a synagogue ruler and doesn't name him. And the other synoptics, Mark and Luke, name him Jairus, which means whom God enlightens. And by the ruler of the synagogue, we can get a false meaning from that in that he's some, like a king. But in fact, he's more of an administrator. He's probably more of a local priest or village elder. And, uh, but this still would have made him a man of influence and means. He's just, he's not a nobody. He's a somebody. And he seeks Jesus because his world has fallen apart and he is powerless to stop it. His daughter is dead or dying and this should not be surprising to us because even though he's a somebody, death comes to us all and touches us amongst our families and even ourselves. Regardless of our station in life, regardless of our race, regardless of our religious preference, death is the universal condition. In verse 18, says that Jairus comes in and he kneels before him. And the word here is proskuneo, which is a word that Matthew usually uses for worship. And it's not just that Jairus comes in and kneels before him, it's that he falls and he throws himself at his feet. And that's exactly what Mark and Luke say. Jairus threw himself at Jesus' feet. We might have seen something like him grabbing Jesus' feet, holding Jesus' feet. The idea here is supplication. And he tells Jesus that his daughter has died, and he asks Jesus to come, touch her, and raise her from the dead. Now, Jairus' daughter is not named in Scripture, but we know from Mark 5 and Luke 8 that she is his only daughter. And she is 12 years old. Mark has Jairus saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. And Luke 42 says, he had only one daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. We've talked about these differences before, but the thing we should think about is Matthew often telescopes stories. So in this case, what we probably see here is he leaves out certain details that Luke and Mark include. Details like them coming to Jesus, maybe even not Jairus himself, maybe messengers coming to Jesus to bring him to Jairus' house. And then in the midst of that, it says that they found out that she had died. Matthew doesn't say that she was sick. Matthew says she died. He goes right to the most important point. The main point is the girl is dead. Mark and Luke have this sense of urgency of getting Jesus to the house so he can save her life. But we know that that doesn't happen. Matthew skips over that to get to the main point. She's dead. Jairus' only little girl, his only little girl, a 12-year-old girl, is dead. Now, we are a church full of little girls. I have three myself, although they're not that little. And... uh, The question is, what would a father do to save a little girl? We have the benefit of having quivers full of little girls. Jairus has one, one little 12-year-old who's dead. How far would we go to save our little girls or our little boys? What would we do? 
I recall camping at Taylorsville Lake one year when my daughters were young. And I'd gotten my middle daughter, Savannah. (laughs) Give me a second. A little arrowhead necklace. I don't remember where I got it. It was probably on a business trip because that's generally what I used to do. I'd bring home a t-shirt or something. A lot of times it was from the airport. But uh, because as soon as I got off the plane and showed up, they'd say, what did you bring me from wherever it was you were? I got you this airport shirt. It's $50. (laughs) But in this case, I got her a little arrowhead necklace, and I don't remember where. But I do remember that while we were there, there was this massive storm. We were camping in our trailer. It was one of our first times out. And my dad had told me before that in the midst of storms, what you need to do is put your awning down. But it seemed like such a small thing until it ripped the awning off the roof of our trailer. And at that point, I didn't really need to put it down. Uh, But in the midst of this, the next day, the girls went out walking the trails, and my daughter comes back shoeless and without a necklace. So overnight, we'd been dumped on by the summer storm that would pretty much made mud all the way up to, you couldn't walk anywhere without getting mud up to your your shins. So, you know, she was pretty broken up about it, and... and, uh, I went in search of the shoe. That meant digging through mud up to my knees and finding this shoe that had gotten sucked into the ground. And and I also remember that I went back out to find the necklace. And I remember feeling, especially in that moment, like a hero. All the dads know that when we do things for our children, finding that necklace, I was a hero. I was the biggest dad on the planet. And it's such a small thing, a little necklace and a little shoe. But that's what we do. Jairus, what he does, in the midst of this, when his daughter's sick, he goes and finds Jesus. I wonder what it must have felt like to know his daughter was dying. And especially know that he could not do anything about it. He's completely powerless to help his daughter. And I think we've been there. Some of us have have watched family members die knowing that we can't do anything about it. But Jairus, he knows something. He knows that he needs to go to find Jesus. So in the middle of these life storms, we all like the calm. But you know what they say, it's always calm before the storm? I mean, there is a reason that they say that. If it's not stormy in your life, it will be. And you need to know who to go to. Jairus has a storm. It's not an arrowhead storm. It's a big storm. His daughter has died. And he goes to find Jesus, the only one that can help her. This is one of those huge, just rock your world storms. A child is one of these, the death of a child. That's a huge storm, not a little arrowhead or lost shoe storm. But Jairus has hope. Jairus is a believer. 
he believes Jesus has the power to save his daughter. This is what Jairus tells Jesus in verse 18. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jairus knows that Jesus can bring her back from the dead with just the touch of his hand. Now, as we've worked out our way through the book of Matthew, we've talked a couple times about how Jesus, how Jews were not supposed to touch the dead bodies. And how if they did, they would be unclean for seven days. And this is what Jairus is asking Jesus, who they call rabbi, to do. To come to his little girl, to touch her and raise her from the dead. A dead body. Numbers 19.11 says that the person that touches a dead body is unclean again for seven days. And this, in this passage, there's a lot of talk about unclean and clean. And we'll get to some of that later, but... In this story, there are dead bodies and women with an issue of blood, which we'll talk about is unclean. But Jesus is Lord over this. He's Lord over death. He's Lord over sickness. And Jairus goes to him knowing that. And Jairus is courageous in doing this. This wasn't a small thing. He's a synagogue ruler. He's probably not a Pharisee, but he's at least somebody. And the Pharisees, we know, are rallying against Jesus. We know that they have seen the crowds following him. They have seen his influence with the people. They have seen and they have been on the end of his wrath and they've been the object of his scorn. And they want him dead. And they are just waiting for their chance. So going to Jesus could be very costly for Jairus. But Jairus knows it's worth it. Jesus is his daughter's only hope, and he knows it, so he pleads with them to come. And in verse 19, we see that Jesus' response is to immediately rise and follow with his disciples. Jairus seeks him out, he acts on his faith, and Jesus is quick to respond to that. He goes. No hesitation, only action. Jesus responds to Jairus' need. This is what good fathers do. And there's times in your life where all these different things happen. You don't know who to go to or where to go to. And in my life, I've had other instances where my family has been acquainted with anxiety, for example. And our oldest daughter and youngest daughter suffer from crippling anxiety. Or did. My oldest daughter suffered with panic attacks that resulted in fainting spells. My youngest daughter is non-epileptic seizures brought on by anxiety and panic. We didn't know that going out, but that's what we learned over time. But while they were in the middle of it, we went to all these different doctors to try and find out what the problem was so they could be healed or to find some medication that would help. And both both of them, for the most part, have grown out of it. But when they were in the middle of it, we all made the same, we were all riding the same roller coaster ride. This just constant up and down of them being well, them being sick, us going to doctors and looking for the why. And with our youngest, she would get flushed and you could count on her legs beginning to spasm. And if you didn't lie her down and elevate her feet quickly, then a lot of times, then she would just be unable to stand. 
She has almost spent more time lying down in churches than sitting up. And we spent the better part of four years trying to figure out what was going on. And now at 27 and 20, whatever it was is essentially gone for the most part. But we still live with these scars of helplessness and the memories of knowing there was nothing we could do. So this weekend, my youngest daughter, who's 20 now and doesn't fall down at the drop of a hat, got married. And it was a beautiful thing. And in the midst of it, my oldest daughter, all my daughters were there together. It was beautiful to see. My oldest daughter is 27 now. It's funny, though, because at some point, everybody that knows her came up to her and said, how are you? And she kept saying, why is everybody asking me that? What is wrong with me that everybody thinks they have to ask me, how are you? But what she didn't know is, every time I'd look at her, I'd go back to that place where there was nothing I could do. She's all grown up. She's 27. But I am still transported right back to this time where she was sick and I was powerless to rescue her. And these are the invisible scars that you can't see from life's storms. Philosopher Albert Hubbard said, God will not look you over the... God will not look you over for medals, degrees, or diplomas, but for scars. And you will have plenty of them, friends. And it's terrible when it's our kids, but sometimes it's not our kids. Or sometimes we don't have kids, we just have storms. Maybe it's you, maybe you're sick. And maybe you're wondering right now when that storm is going to end. When are you going to be healed? When is your adversity going to end? You might be asking, when will I be healed from my adversity? When will my situation change? When will I be rescued from my childhood trauma, from my adversity, from uh, unbelieving children, from failing marriage, from a job that you hate? You might be asking, how long, O oh Lord? And friends, you are not alone. This is the heart's cry of millions of people over thousands of years. It was the cry of God's prophets, God's kings. David cries this very thing in Psalm 13. He starts it out saying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But if we keep reading, if we read further down in verse 5, we see, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing of the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. David continues in the midst of this while waiting to trust. Trusting God's faithfulness, his steadfast love, his goodness. And even our Savior waited. He, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup from me. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus knew what was coming when he asked that. 
and he commits to doing the Father's will. But we see there that it's not like he's especially thrilled about it. He's going to the cross. This is from Matthew 26, just before he goes there. Jesus feels things. He feels things. He wants things. But he also trusts in God's goodness and in God's promises. So as they travel to Jairus' home, Jesus has an encounter with this woman. And this woman is very ill. The woman who has suffered from the discharge of blood for 12 years. I've just told you that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. So as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been sick with the issue of blood. And it's a problem that makes her continually unclean. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't sleep in her bed with her husband. She couldn't touch her family. It doesn't say whether or not she had kids, but if she didn't, she couldn't. For 12 years, she'd been barren. Do you know how long 12 years is? It's a number, but think about it. 12 years ago, Apple announced its first iPhone. Sold over a million units at $599. It's probably worth more now. The Tesla Roadster debuted at auto shows. 12 years. Society would not have been kind to this woman. We know that generally she would have been considered perpetually unclean or unclean for the last 12 years. It's probably not like they would have put her on an island like the lepers, but at the same time, it's probably not like she would have been invited to a lot of the social events. and She probably didn't have a lot of close friends. <coughs> Excuse me. And the gospel tells us that during that time, it's not like she did nothing. She had spent all her money going to doctors and trying to be cured. But if you can imagine the toll that bleeding for 12 years would take on your body, chronic bleeding, perpetually fatigued, probably anemic. Spiritually, she's unable to enter the ritual bath to be cleansed, the mikvah. She's unable to go to a temple. She's unable to have a normal relationship with her friends, her children, her husband, or her rabbi. Her rabbi probably would not have come to her because rabbis did not want to touch unclean things and be unclean themselves. So 12 years of disappointment, 12 years of uncertainty, and 12 years of waiting. I mean, I hate to wait. I am a man of instant gratification. I like to know things like when they're going to happen. I like, to, I like things to end when I think they should end. You might be thinking that now. <laughs> but life is full of waiting. It's mostly full of waiting, and it's also full of weathering. That's the hard part. There are so many things beyond our control It's amusing that we're convinced that we can control anything at all. Regarding the blood, we see in Leviticus 15, 19, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. It goes on to say, whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. 
everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Basically, it goes on to say that everything she touches or that touches her is unclean. Unless it's her husband. If he lies with her, which is a euphemism for marital relations, he is unclean for seven days and every bed that he lies on becomes unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So that's the, the regular issue of blood. In verse 25, it goes on to say, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. So this woman can never get clean and hasn't been clean for 12 years. Leviticus 19 admonishes them to stay separate from uncleanness. It says, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So she couldn't go to the temple to become clean because she was unclean. It tells them to remain separate from unclean things. Like her. Touching her makes them unclean. She touches them, they're unclean. And like I said, it's unlikely that any spiritual leaders or rabbis would have come to her because they would not have wanted to be made unclean. The woman with the issue of the blood seems powerless to heal herself or be healed, but she also has something powerful. She has faith and hope in Jesus. Verse 20 goes on to say that she came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. And 21 says, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well, she says to herself. If you look in different translations, you'll see different words there, hem, edge, fringe, tassel, border. And according to the Mosaic law, Jews were supposed to put tassels on the corner of their garments. And if you read Deuteronomy 22 or Numbers 15, you'll see that each tassel was to have a blue thread running through it as a perpetual reminder of the law of God. This is what she's reaching out for. and We see in Mark 6 the same thing where the people of Gennesaret comes in and it says in 656, and whenever he came in in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. There's some sense there that there's some supernatural power to the tassel that they're thinking might heal them. She might think the cloak is magical, but there's nothing magical about Jesus' cloak other than Jesus is wearing it. Christ's response to her touching his cloak is to heal her and to say, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's not the power of her faith so much. Faith is not some kind of magic we wield. It's the object of it. The power is Christ. Faith is the instrument that we use to reach to him. 
In that same way, Jairus was exercising his faith, trusting that Christ in hue with his touch. And what does he do? He worships at his feet because he knows that Jesus is who he says he is and because he believes in him. And that's what we see here. This woman trusts that Jesus has the power to heal. So she reaches out for him. She travels through a crowd. If you remember back to the leper, unclean people walking through clean people probably wasn't the most comfortable feeling, but that's what she does. And like I said, she's probably not feeling the greatest. She's had the issue of blood for 12 years, but she goes after Jesus. He encourages, encourages, I'll try and get this out, encourages her as well. He tells her, take heart. He calls her daughter, which is such a kind thing to do. Remember where he's going? He's on his way to heal a daughter, Jairus' daughter, who's dead. In the midst of this, he stops and heals this woman and calls her daughter. She's not dead, but it's not hard to imagine that there's probably times that she wished she, she were. And she's been told that she's unclean for 12 years. But Jesus' response to this, he heals her and he calls her his daughter. I don't think there's any question about who heals this woman. We know that it's not that she touched his magic cloak. Otherwise, as Jesus was walking through the crowds and Mark and Luke, you know, remember that Jesus, he actually asks, he feels power going out of him and says, who touched me? And in Mark and Luke, the disciples are kind of put back like, well, everybody's touched you, Lord. And we know that there probably wasn't a widespread massive healing just by people rubbing up against Jesus. Jesus intentionally heals this woman. Jesus has the power over the natural, the supernatural, disease, and death. And she sought him hoping for healing, hoping for an end to suffering. But she not only gets healing, but she gets restoration. Restores her to the status of daughter, daughter of a king, that's pretty good. You get the sense here that Christ wanted to draw attention to this woman. Mark and Luke have him asking again, who touched me? And it seems as if Christ, who we know knows who touched him, he intentionally draws attention to her so he can encourage her and acknowledge her in front of them. While the miracles bring physical healing, Christ is always concerned with the spiritual reconciliation and restoration of his people. He's a suffering savior, but he suffers out of love. We, we shouldn't over-spiritualize what's going on here. We don't want to make it about the reaching out or the touching of the hem. That is an act of faith, but the real power is the power of the unexpected, long-expected king. Christ is the center of this story. This isn't a do this and you'll receive that kind of message. And what we need to take away from this is Christ's sufficiency in every situation. 
in, it's probably selective. We know Jesus probably didn't heal everybody that he could have. We know he healed everybody that he willed to heal. And some of these people that weren't physically healed probably believed that he was the Messiah. Just like some of the people that Jesus did heal probably didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, we see that Jesus heals these 10 lepers. And if you remember the story, you remember that there was one who returned to worship him. One. And you remember what he was? He was a Samaritan. When you read this passage, you'll see that the Samaritan came back and he threw himself at Jesus' feet in the same way that Jairus did. And he thanked him. And Jesus tells him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Which should be familiar because that's exactly what he tells the woman with the issue of blood. Now the other nine lepers were healed as well, but they're long gone. They take off. And based on the response of the Samaritan, I think we know he's saved. He comes back and worships God. And I think in that same way, we can argue that the other nine weren't saved. They were healed, but they probably weren't saved. These miracle stories, they're amazing, and they're meant to confirm Jesus' identity. He is the Messiah. He has the power over death. He has the power to heal. And he's come for the cross. He hasn't come to heal everybody. He's come to show that he is the Messiah sent from God. In Philippians 2.8, we see, it says, In being found in human form, the hum- he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is about Jesus, and what it's about is him being the long-expected king. In Hebrews 7.23, it says about his priesthood, Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenant. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And this is Jesus. And he says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you have faith, Christ has made you well. You are restored. You are a daughter. You are a son to a holy God. You may still be plagued with any number of physical infirmities, but you are promised an eternity of joy, peace, and communion with God. How precious do you think it was for this woman who'd been suffering for 12 years 
to hear Jesus heal her in an instant and then call her daughter? How badly do you think she needed to hear that? What would it feel like to not be bleeding after 12 years of continually bleeding? And his encouragement, take heart, her faith has made her well. And Jesus is not afraid of her touch any more than he is afraid of touching the dead girl. He can't be made unclean. Clean things can't be made unclean again. What's clean can't be made unclean. If we look on in verse 23, they continue on and they make it to Jairus' house. And when they get there, they find that the girl is dead and they've already got professional mourners out there. And the Mishnah, which is a Jewish collection that records the tradition, required that there would be two flautists. Did I say that correctly? I said flutists earlier. And one wailing mourner at every death. So this was a requirement of the Hebrew tradition to have two flautists and a mourner. And the job of the mourner was to wail. And this is what they did. Funerals were a big thing. They were a big production. You remember in Genesis 49 when Israel dies, they mourn him for seven days. The expectation is that someone would have been continually mourning and wailing for seven days. And then the Egypts... I'm sorry, the Egyptians mourn him for another 70, 77 days of wailing because of Jacob's father dying. So we've got these two flautists, at least, and the mourners, and this was just, this was like the base model. You know, if you got the one with the dealer options, you get more mourners or more flautists or maybe some other instruments, but The more money you had, the more people would be there wailing. The louder it would be, the more commotion it would be. And we shouldn't think that it got better when Jesus got there because what's Jesus traveling with? He's coming with crowds, right? The people are following him. They've probably seen some of these other miracles. They've probably seen this woman healed. And we know that Jesus actually seeks out places to find solitude because When he's amongst the people, it's crowded. So having all these other people show up probably did not make it any better. And if they heard about this, that he was on his way to Jairus' house, if they knew that he was on his way to heal the dead, then you can be sure that other people would have gone ahead of him. So Jesus gets there. And he tells them, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And if you look at their response, it says in verse 24 that they laughed at him. This isn't just a regular like laughing, like, ha ha, you don't know what you're talking about. This is like a laugh of derision. This is mocking. They mock him when he said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Well, I wonder if it's because they're getting paid to mourn, and if she's not dead, then they don't really need to be there, and they're probably going to be out of a job. Or maybe they're looking at their future potential earning, and that uh, if Jesus is healing people from the dead, they might be out of work permanently. But either way, they mock him. They don't believe him. And Jesus knows that she's dead. But he also knows that he has the power over life and death. And he knows he's about to heal her. That's why he went with Jairus. 
He didn't go there to mourn the little girl. He went there to raise the little girl. And he could have raised her with a word from wherever it was they were at. As soon as the woman touched him, he could have healed her then. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes. We see this in chapter 1139 when he raises, I'm sorry, that's John chapter 1139, when he raises Lazarus. He goes then too, and you remember he gets there and they ask him, why didn't you come sooner? He's been dead for four days. And he even said he smells a little. But Jesus has the tomb unsealed, and then he calls Lazarus forward. With the girl, he touches her. He grabs her by the hand. And in Mark, it says, he tells her to arise, little girl. You contrast this with the story of the centurion, chapter 8, 5 through 13. You see that Jesus tells the centurion that he's going to come heal the centurion's servant. And the centurion tells him, don't do that. I know you can do it from here. Just do it. And Jesus just does it. The leper in chapter 8 comes to him in faith and says, if you want to, if you will, if you can, you can make me clean. And Jesus does so. The demoniacs believe he can send them into the pigs, and he does. And the woman with the issue of 12 12 years of bleeding knows that if she just touches his hem, it'll be made, she will be made well. Jairus believes that Jesus can raise his daughter, and he asks Jesus to touch her. It says, come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. It's interesting that Jesus could have done that as soon as he told him. He could have said, Jairus, go home. Your daughter is well. She's alive. But he goes with them. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus does exactly what Jairus requests. Luke says the girl's parents were amazed. And in Luke, Jesus charges them to tell no one what has happened. But we see in Matthew that that's really not going to happen. You can't stop this from spreading. People know that she's been raised. And it says in 26, and the report of this went through all the district. So the report of what Jesus has done spreads through all the district. In Mark, he tells her, don't tell anybody, but we see in Matthew that it doesn't matter. All the people are talking, the word spreads. The girl gets healed. She's raised from the dead. But this passage is about Jesus answering the prayers of a synagogue ruler and a woman with the issue of blood. And who he is that he can do that. It's not to show it's possible when we ask, although that is what he wants us to do. He wants us to ask. But it's to demonstrate that Jesus has the power to do what we ask. He has the power to conquer sin and death. He comes to restore what was lost in the garden. And this leaves us where we started in Genesis 2. We talked about the recording of the fall of man and death entering the world. But if you read on in Genesis 3, this is where our hope comes from. It says, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the Evangelion and it's all about Jesus. He's the rescue plan. We wait on his return and on the consummation of that kingdom that was ushered in by Jesus coming in the form of a baby. That is often the way of it is, the way of it, friends. We're called to believe and we're called to wait. We're often called to suffer, but we are promised a sufficient Savior. He is sufficient for you. In the midst of your suffering, your weakness, your illness, your infirmities, your family suffering. This is a painful life sometimes, and it is often uncomfortable, but it is promised to be worth it because of the next life. For this life, God gave us each other, the church, and the Holy Spirit. Gives us strength to wait. He calls us to wait, calls us to hope, calls us to believe. And yes, he calls us sometimes chased after Jesus and act. How can we do anything else? Let's pray.